Have you ever thought about what you might like your final words to be if when the time came you were able to choose them? Well, words taken from this psalm have been the final words of many of God's people down through the years. The opening words of verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. They were the final words of the German reformer Martin Luther. They were the final words of the Scottish reformer John Knox. In 1666, the covenanter Hugh McHale sung them at the grass market in Edinburgh before he was hanged at the age of 26. And of course, they were the final words of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Over the last number of years, we've been working through the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Each time we have communion, uh, we have one left to do, and it's this one. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's taken straight from Psalm 31. But this isn't just a song for the end of life. Because verse 15 tells us that our times are in God's hands. Uh, Times means all the different seasons of life we're going through. Whether that's some of our our boys and girls starting a school for the first time, or starting a, a new school, or starting a new year at school, or whether it's... Uh, someone who has long left your school days behind you and you see a new phase of life looming round the corner and it's not one you're looking forward to but your times are in God's hands so this is a psalm for for all God's people at every stage of life but particularly uh, for when the heat is being turned up when pressure is on when critics are having a field day And when even those closest to you are pretending that you don't exist. And if if any of that resonates with you tonight, then I trust that you will feel the comfort of this psalm. And if, if that's not a phase of life that you're going through at the moment, then now is the time to let the words of a psalm like this go deep down inside you. So that when the winds of trouble do come, that you would have some ballast in your soul. Ballast being what's added to a boat uh, to keep it stable in the storm. And we need uh, something in us. We need things built into us to keep us stable in the storms. And, And the Psalms are one of the things that do that for us. And above all, this Psalm is relevant to each one of us because... If the words of verse 5 are ultimately the words of the Lord Jesus, then should we not read the rest of the psalm as ultimately spoken by him as well? If verse 5 was on his heart on the cross, uh, were the surrounding verses not? And so our our headings tonight can be taken as referring to David, the, the human author of the psalm, or as referring to the Lord Jesus, the one that David, by his spirit, wrote this psalm in preparation for and ultimately the psalm speaks of both it's the words of David drawn from his own experiences but those experiences were so overruled by God that they would also be the experiences of the Lord Jesus but to a far greater degree and they are experiences that the rest of God's people will face too 
knowing as we go through them that the captain of our salvation has gone through them as well. In fact, that that he's experienced some of the things that this psalm talks about to a far deeper extent than we ever will. And in doing so, he has blazed a trail for us. And we know that as we we do so, we're not left to go this road alone, but our times are in his hands. And so we have two headings this evening. Firstly, we'll see the anguish he faces, but then secondly, the God he holds on to. So the anguish he faces, and then the God he holds on to. Firstly, the anguish he faces. Maybe we would expect the psalm to begin with the problem and end with the solution. Uh, To start with with the dire situation that he's in and then end with how God has graciously delivered him. But here in Psalm 31, we don't really get to the heart of what uh, David is going through until we get to the middle of the psalm. The psalm begins with a direct a declaration of faith in God and confidence in Him. It ends with a note of thanksgiving. Uh, but right in the middle, in verses nine through thirteen, is where we come face to face with His anguish. Verses nine and ten talk about both physical suffering and spiritual suffering. Verse nine: Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. And he ends verse 10 by saying that his bones waste away. He does talk about his own sin in verse 10 though. He's conscious of his sin, whether that's just his sin in general or a specific sin weighing on him, it's hard to know. And I think that's instructive for us. Because it seems that most of the grief that he's facing is coming from other people. In verse 11 he talks about all of his adversaries. In verse 15 he talks about his persecutors. But when grief does come into our life at the hands of other people, it's very easy for us to only focus on their sin. It's very easy to be consumed with their sin against us. And in fact, to so focus on their sin that we forget about our own. To forget that even though they may be guilty of sin, that we are too. That even if their sin wasn't bringing misery on us, that our own sin would still bring misery on us. To only ever be talking about other people and how they're doing wrong, uh, whether that's to us or to someone else, It can be an easy way to get out of thinking about our own sin and reckoning with it. It's not that we need to go around publicising our own sin. But but listen to the stories that we tell. I know we're the ones telling the stories. But but sometimes it's good to to just just listen listen and see what we're saying. Because if we or or a family member are are always the victim in every story that we tell. Is that the telltale sign of a mindset that's a lot quicker to see others as sinners rather than ourselves as sinners? We live in a world where, where even if people would, would, would never describe it this way, even if they, they would never use this, the word sin, we live in a world where people see themselves as sinned against 
rather than sinners. And it is true that, that we're all sinned against in various ways, some in horrific ways. But one of the signs of God's grace in someone, which I, I've seen in some of you, is that you now look back at your life and your own sin looms larger in your mind, even than some of the massive sins committed against you. Even if, if from any perspective the sins committed against you are, are, are huge, looking back, it's, it's your own sin that gets you. And the only explanation for that can be the work of God's Holy Spirit. But there was one person who, who sang this psalm who was only ever sinned against and never a sinner. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, we're both, we're both sinned against, but we're also sinners. But maybe that raises a question in your mind. How can we see this psalm as the words of the Lord Jesus if the person speaking talks of their own sin? Well, certainly the Lord Jesus could never say the words my iniquity in verse 10 as referring to his own sin because he didn't have any sin of his own. But he went to the cross as our sin bearer and he faced a combination of physical and spiritual suffering that no other singer of this psalm had ever experienced. And in fact, when we get to verse 11, the, the cross references in, in, in your Bible, at least in the church Bibles, will take you directly to the cross. Can we read verse 11 without thinking of the suffering of our Lord? Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbours, and an object of dread to my acquaintances, those who see me in the street flee from me. Here's a man being abandoned by those closest to him. And the little notes in our Bibles rightly point us to Matthew 26 and Mark 14, where we read that all the disciples left him and fled. He's abandoned. He's abandoned. And then in verse 12, he's forgotten. He says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. A word that has become increasingly popular in our own day is the word ghosting. It means that when someone suddenly cuts off all contact from you. Uh, maybe two people are in a relationship, but one day the other person just stops returning text, stops answering calls, and so on. Uh, and it's called ghosting because it's as if they've died but they haven't, they just wanted out of the relationship uh, and for them they thought that was the easiest way to do it. And for those on the receiving end of it, it's heartbreaking. At the start they think, oh, oh well maybe, maybe their phone's broken uh, and they think, oh, maybe they've had an accident, maybe I should phone the hospitals and see if, if they're okay. But sooner or later it becomes clear that the other person is alive and well and just ignoring them. And the devastation really sinks in. It'd be bad enough to have one person do that to you. But imagine having everyone you knew do that to you. 
And rather than one person being like a ghost because they've stopped replying to you, suddenly it's as if you're the ghost. It's as if you're the one that's dead because everyone's ignoring you. Verse 12, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. The invitations to do things stop coming. The people who once hung out with you still hang out with each other, but you're not included anymore. The group chats fall silent. In a way, it's more hurtful than if someone were to say horrible things to your face. Because it's like you're so irrelevant that they just ignore you. And add into the mix in verse 13 a whispering campaign. Because not only are they ignoring you, but they're talking about you behind your back. Perhaps you've known what it is to experience that. Or you've suspected it. The conversations that fall silent when you walk into a room. The way people look at each other, maybe smirk at each other when they think you're not looking. But you see it. But did you know that you have a saviour who knows what it's like to be left all alone? To be abandoned by those closest to him. To have his friends abandon him when he needed them the most. And if he's not your saviour this evening, he can be your saviour. He says in verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. Perhaps you often feel that no one else really understands you. Perhaps you feel that you have troubles that you can't share or that you can't fully share even with other believers because they've never experienced it and you think they just wouldn't get it. But even if that is true, you have a saviour who does understand you. What reassured him in his suffering was that his father had seen his affliction. And that's nearly enough in and of itself to keep us going, isn't it? That what others don't see, God sees. That if people think you have it all together, but you don't, if they think that you can cope with criticism, but you actually can't, and they don't see the hurt that it causes you, God sees. God sees. And sometimes, maybe through the tears, when you're hurting so much, and everyone else thinks you're perfectly fine, sometimes through the, through the tears, when you don't know what to pray, all you might be able to say is, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Sometimes it's enough just to know that someone else understands even if they can't do anything about it. But of course the difference with God is that he can do something about it. The book of Exodus, it begins with God seeing his people's pain there in slavery in Egypt. But such is God's heart for them that, that it's as if he can't just see them suffering and do nothing. And so chapter 1, he sees their suffering, but chapter 2, he begins to do something about it. And God did something too about the, the suffering of 
our Lord Jesus. That was his experience too. For him at the end of verse 13, the, the whispering campaign aimed at nothing short of taking his life. And it looked like his enemies were victorious when he died on that cross. But it only looked like it. And in light of the resurrection, Jesus could sing, verse 8, You have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. But we're almost skipping ahead a bit, aren't we? Uh, this first point ha- has been mainly about the, the anguish that he faces. Uh, whether we take heed to be David or, or Jesus or, or the average Jew believer. But it is almost impossible not to skip ahead and think of the God he holds on to. Because the God that we hold on to is a God who sees our suffering. He's a God who in Christ knows what it's like. And he's a God who won't leave us long without doing something about it. But now we move on to look more specifically at the God we can hold on to in the midst of our trials So secondly, this evening, having considered his anguish, uh, we see now the God he holds on to. The God he holds on to. And when I say the God he holds on to, the emphasis has to be on, on God, doesn't it? Not on us, because our grip on him is a lot weaker than his grip on us. We see that down in verse 22, actually, where the writer recalls a point where his grip had nearly come loose altogether. Verse 22, I've said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. It was devastating to be abandoned by his friends. To be ghosted, if we want to put it like that. But but to be abandoned by God, it doesn't bear thinking about We've thought already tonight about the reassurance it is to know that God sees what we suffer. But what if God himself has taken his eye off us? And In our alarm, we can start to think that. It never happens. He never does take his eye off us. But we can start to think that he has. And again, it's hard to read verse 22 without thinking of the Lord Jesus when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'd said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Even those closest to God, even the sinless Son of God can feel at times like God has abandoned them. And if we do feel like that at times, we need to keep going. We need to go to the rest of the verse where it says, But you have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Yes, it might feel like God has abandoned us, but he never will. He hears the voice of our pleas for mercy when we cry to him. God's grip on us is a lot stronger than our grip on him. But but faith means holding on to him. Boys and girls, what 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 does what does faith mean? What, why, why do you hold your mum or dad's hand when you cross the road? Well, you hold your mum or dad's hand because you have faith that they will, they will keep you safe, that they'll not pull you out in front of a car. And faith in God means holding on to him, uh, knowing that he won't let go of us, knowing that he'll keep us safe. 
Faith means holding on to God and psalm after psalm after psalm calls us to keep clinging on to God even in darkness. So what is it about this God that will encourage us to keep holding on to him even in darkness? Well for the rest of our time tonight we want to see three things from these verses about this God which will encourage us to keep holding on to him. Uh, So on to this second point, uh, the God he holds on to, we see three things Three things which encourage him to hold on to this God and three things which will encourage us to hold on to this God. Uh, and number one, uh, number one reason why we hold on to him, because he has promised to be our God. He has promised to be our God. Verse 14 is the turning point of the psalm. The words, I and you are emphatic. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. What is it to say that God is our God? Well, it's to remember one of the great foundation promises of the whole Bible. Where God says again and again, I will be your people and you will be my God. So for us to say, you are my God, uh, for us to, to, to sing these words, it, it doesn't just mean that, that we're the sort of people who will tick the box on a census form uh, beside the box where it says Christian. Anybody can tick a box. Anybody can, can call themselves a Christian. But, but to say that God is our God, it means we're banking our lives, our family's lives and our eternity on God's promise that he will be our God and we will be his people. We're banking everything on his promise. And why would we not? Because as someone has said, this promise is basically God saying, I will exercise my godness on your behalf. When God says, I will be your God, it's him saying, I will exercise my godness on your behalf. Charles Spurgeon once said of these words, Thou art my God has more sweetness in it than any other utterance which which human speech can utter. More sweetness in the words, you are my God, than any other human uttering. So do you know that sweetness? Do you know that sweetness to to look at this God and say, you are my God? That when you think about God, it's it's not a fear that you have, but it's a sweetness and a joy to be able to say that he is your God. Because the the threat that you maybe once felt when you thought about God, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, Jesus has taken it away. Will you be able to hear the, the thunderstorm when it comes tonight or tomorrow and say, that's my God speaking. Can you look at the cross and can you say, you are my God. Or is this great God, is he just the God of other people? Is he a God that you've heard of, a God that you know things about? You could maybe answer some quiz questions about him, but he's not your God. Uh, there's all the difference in the world between those two things Uh, to skip towards the end of the psalm for a minute verse 23 there's this great call to love the lord love the lord all you his saints and if you cannot say i love the lord then he's not actually 
your God. But if he is, what, what an encouragement that is to hold on to him in the darkness. To hold on to him when everyone else has abandoned you. When all other supports have broken away in your hands. The second encouragement to hold on to this God is that our times are in his hand. Our times are in his hands. I want to speak specifically to the the boys and girls, to the young people as we look at verse 15. Because this is a verse that you can easily remember. So verse 15, my times are in your hands. Can you remember those six words? My times are in your hands. I think it would be quite easy to remember those words, but what does it mean? Well, boys and girls, have you ever heard the song that says that God has the whole world in his hands? What does it mean that God has the whole world in his hands? Well, it means that he's looking after the whole world. It means that there's nothing that happens in the whole world that's outside of God's control. So what does it mean that your times are in his hands? Well, it means that he is in control of every stage of life that you go through. And for some of you, in another eight days, boys and girls, another eight days, young people, that will mean starting school for the first time. Or it will mean starting a new school for the first time. Or it will mean going into a new class or dropping some subjects, starting new subjects. And maybe you're worried about what it will be like. But when God says that your times are in his hands, he promises to be with you. He promises that you're not going to that new school alone, that you're not going into that new phase of life alone, because he will be with you if your trust is in him. And that is true at every stage of life. We can say, my times are in your hands. It's true for those who are anticipating a new baby or an adopted child joining the family. It's true for, for you if you're thinking that before too long you might have to face the, the, the death of a spouse or, or you, you think of your own mortality or perhaps you think of a hospital appointment that's looming and you can say your times, my times are in your hands. Whatever it is that lies ahead, whether it's near on the horizon or whether it's, it's further away but it seems to be getting closer and closer with each passing year. Say, my times are in your hands. And what are God's hands like? Well, they're strong hands. They're kind hands. They're, they're good hands. They're hands that will pick you up when you get to the point where you're not able to keep going any longer. They're hands that will pick you up and close around you and say, it's okay, I'm here, you're home now. That's really what it is for the Christian to die. It's for them to reach the point where they can't walk any longer. And it's for your heavenly Father to reach down and pick you up and gather you in and say, it's okay, you're home now. So cling on to this God because our times are in his hands. But then the third, uh, the final encouragement to keep holding on to him. And with this we'll close 
is that he has stored up goodness for us. Thirdly and finally, he has stored up goodness for us. I love that image in verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Uh, To put it another way, how massive your goodness, which you have stashed away for those who fear you. Imagine coming across hidden treasure and and realising that many, many years before, someone had stored it up specifically for you and they want you to use it. But what God has stored up for us is far greater than gold. God has stored up goodness for us. It's as if he has storehouses of goodness for his people, perhaps some of which we, we will only experience in trials. Perhaps some will only experience in trials. And that experience of God's goodness, even in the midst of a trial, is, is what allows David, uh, what allows the Lord Jesus to call out in, in verses 23 and 24, Love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Or as it could be translated, be strong and he will strengthen your heart. All you who wait for the Lord. And that is real gold. When we go through a trial that Satan hopes will be the very thing that causes us to lose our grip on God altogether. But actually, all it does is cause us to hold on to him even tighter. And in doing so, we experience new treasures of God's goodness. And what an opportunity in a self-centered world that when we're suffering, and as a result, the spotlight is turned and focused on us and and there's maybe even the temptation to, to relish in it. That as we're suffering and people want to turn the spotlight on us. That we would instead turn the spotlight round and point it to God and say, No, don't look at me, but look at my great God instead. And so we've seen tonight the anguish he faces. We live in a broken world. We are sinners But we're also sinned against. And much of this psalm resonates with us. But above all tonight we've seen the God that he holds on to. Is this God your God? If he is then you'll be okay. Because you and your times are in his hands. Which is the safest place in the whole universe for them to be. Amen. Well, let's now turn to to some verses of this psalm and sing them back to God in response to him. Psalm 31 at verse 15 on page 57. Psalm 31 verse 15. And we'll sing verse 15 through to 20. So beginning on page 57. Psalm 31, uh, 15 through to 20. And the tune is number 103. Tune 103. My times are all within your hand. And even, even the fact that it says times, not time, is significant. It's not just one time uh, will be in God's hand. It's not just that, that we will be in God's hand at one point in our life, uh, but all through our lives. Every time we go through, our times are in your hand. And uh, may we uh, know the reality of these words as we sing them together. So verses 15 to 20, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs> 